the Siege of New Hampshire series by Mick Rowland. Book Four, Susan's Bridge. Chapter Three, Dead End. This is the end of the hardscape, Hal announced, mostly to Susan. From the river road here to the bridge will be leaf litter and grasses. Try not to walk exactly where someone else did. It starts to make a path. Someone will be along afterward to fluff up the ground behind us. You get used to knowing where to step, said Justine. Avoid treading the tall grasses. Fixing those make a damn rada testy, she winked. There was an impish twinkle in Justine's eyes. Susan smiled. Justine seemed likable. Susan chose her steps carefully. She walked to minimize disturbing the ground as much as possible, as she had on her patrols back in Cheshire. Everyone spoke in half-whispers. Hal had an earbud in to listen to his walkie-talkie. Through the bare tree trunks, the scrubby brush still clung to a few leaves. The rusty brown girders of the bridge came into view. Does she look like you remember? Justine pointed with an open hand to the bridge. Susan stopped to stare at the eastern end of the old bridge. She never thought about the bridge as a she. The trusses were overgrown with brush on both sides. Young trees and old vines wove through the openings in the girders, as if trying to absorb the structure into the forest. I remember it bigger, she said. Justine laughed. I suppose that would be so. You said you rode upon it when you were just a child. You were smaller then. Several men and women climbed up the embankment from the river. Who are these people? Do they live at the camp too? Susan whispered an aside to Justine. They are our workers for today, Justine whispered back. They come from... Another hidden settlement, not the camp. The mixed group of men and women wore scruffy winter coats, heavy caps, and thick gloves. Their ages ranged from a silver-haired man to a teen girl. They studied Susan, the obvious newcomer, but avoided eye contact. Susan guessed that life in the underground meant not asking a lot of questions. Okay, peoples, Justine addressed the group. This morning we will repeat the test with the van. But I am wanting new numbers. Good numbers this time. Remember that you must be precise. Every fraction of the inch matters. Come and get a tape measure from my bag. Justine waved to Susan as she, Hal, and Charon walked onto the bridge. The workers gathered around Justine's canvas tote, stealing glances at Susan and whispering amongst themselves. Patches of the old Victorian green paint still clung to the girders and beams, mostly where sheltered from the wind and rain. The rest was mottled rust. The roadway surface was badly crumbled blacktop with remnants of bygone patch jobs. Susan remembered the impromptu games she and Melissa would play, weaving their bikes in and around the pothole patches, pretending that they were crocodiles. Sometimes the patches were islands, 
Each had to be touched in series in order to reach Ice Cream Island. The wind nipped at Susan's nose. She was much more exposed in the middle of the span. The river below still flowed slowly. Patches of ice clung to the shore in sheltered nooks. The three of them walked briskly in awkward silence. At least, it felt awkward to Susan. In the scrub and trees at the western end of the bridge, several men were pulling camouflage netting off of a pale blue and yellow cube van. Faded lettering on the side read, Calhoun Furniture. Someone had splashed light brown paint on the van in a quick attempt at camouflage. Once the van was set free of the net, several men took up positions at the rear bumper and began to push while another man steered. The only sounds were the crunch of gravel under the tires, the scrapes of slipping boots, and the occasional grunt. The van rolled onto the bridge. Hal and Charon stopped, once they were at the edge of the bridge's paved landing. Charon pulled a bundle of white fabric out of his backpack. Okay, let's boot up, he said. Susan took the wad of rags that he thrust at her. She had no idea what she was supposed to do with them, but she didn't want to ask. Hal sat on the ground, placing a square of fabric beneath one foot. Susan followed his example. Charon wadded up some smaller squares of fabric and placed them between the sole of his boot and the square of the fabric on the ground. Oh, padding. I get it. We don't want to leave distinct footprints, thought Susan. She quickly fashioned two padded booties over her hiking boots. She tied the outer fabric around her ankles with paracord, just like the two men had done. It can be a little tricky walking at first, Hal said to her, but it comes quickly. Okay, said Charon. Avoid the snow if you can, but if you can't, vary your gait and even sidestep a few times. There'll be no hiding our trail to a sharp eye, but we can make it harder for him. It won't fool a real tracker, but the average guardsman isn't trained for that. We'll return by a whole nother route, hoping our trail will look like random travels. Charon and Hal checked their rifles, nodded to each other, then pointed into the woods. Susan felt underarmed, with only her little revolver in her waistband. She told herself that she was the scout and didn't need a big gun. The guards needed big guns. Hal led them across the country road into another woods. Susan could make out the shapes of houses and the bait shop at Satan's Corner through the trees. Hal was trying to avoid traveling on the roads. There was little snow in the woods. The isolated patches in the clearings could be avoided. With their padded boots, they left no perceptible trail that Susan could see. This is the main logging road, Hal announced quietly. He pointed up a dirt road that gently curved up the side of the hill. This is all looking familiar, right? The road did not look familiar to Susan. She and Melissa had always come to the logging road from past the bait shop. They used to pick up the fire trail as it forked off of the paved road. She was unsure where they were along the fire trail, or if they were even on it. It better look familiar, snipped Charon. He leveled a skeptical frown at her. Give me a second, Susan stalled for time. I didn't come up at it from the woods, but from the road. The logging trail looked rather wider than she remembered. 
She was always there in the summer, when everything was leafed out. She closed her eyes to replay memories of racing their bikes to see who would reach the ridge first. When she opened her eyes, she recognized their location as the second bend after the fork. It was the last tricky part before the trail went up the ridge. She had wiped out there one time and skinned her knee. Oh, now I recognize this place, she said. We keep going up and over the ridge. She pointed up the trail, which amounted to a low mohawk of yellow grasses between two dirt ruts. Hal shook his head as they resumed walking. I've followed this road already. It's no good, but you'll see for yourself soon enough. Susan felt her confidence run cold inside her, but showed nothing outwardly. After they crested the ridge, the road led down a gentle slope. Tree branches overhung the road. If it had been summer, it would have been dark and shady. Walking in the soft boots was awkward, but effective. She noticed the Charon, walking ahead of her, left no indentations in the dirt. He was careful to take stomp-like steps as to not kick any rocks out of place. Susan tried to mimic his steps. She carefully avoided disturbing any rocks or crushing any old dirt bike tire ruts. It helped that the ground was frozen. After thirty yards down a gentle slope, the road ahead made an abrupt right turn. The dirt of the ruts had been regularly turned up by years of four-wheelers enjoying some off-road fun. Patches of snow survived the afternoon sun in the shadier areas. Charon stopped at the turn. Okay, Hal pointed down the well-worn trail to the right. That way leads up and around, but eventually comes back to the country road that follows the river. There are some cross trails off of it, but they loop back too. Ahead here is the old logging road. As you can see, it's pretty overgrown. Not much reason to take it, other than teen beer parties. There were piles of cans down there. It dead ends at the swamp. What? Susan was confused. You're sure? Look, I got patrols to make, some hunting to do, and a rendezvous to keep. I don't have time to traipse all over these hills looking for roads that aren't there. Susan frowned. But there has to be a road. She had that hopeless feeling again, stuck in a canoe without a paddle. She took a few more steps, but she could see that the trail ended at a wall of tan cattails. Barkless tree skeletons stood in the swamp. The area had once been forest, later flooded, and become a wetland. Was this the road of her childhood? Had it been swallowed by a swamp? Hal interrupted with a raised finger. He pressed the earbud into his ear. He held the small microphone close to his mouth. Roger that. Five-niner out. What's up? Charon asked. Outer Lookout reported a Fed team setting up a position further west, Hal said. Could mean drones coming early. We'd better play it safe and head back so we're not caught out here. Uh, we can come look again tomorrow, right? Susan asked. She wasn't giving up. She and Melissa had ridden their bikes from Satan's Corner to the big dairy farm on the Valley Highway. Charon and Hal both rolled their eyes. Whatever you say, princess, said Charon. Susan could feel a rush of rage and embarrassment making her face warm. She turned away and pulled her hood down. She wasn't doing very well as the scout everyone was counting on. It seemed to take forever to get back to the bridge. 
Susan noticed a headache coming on, but realized it was because she was grinding her teeth since they had turned around. Hal waved discreetly. To Susan's surprise, an arm appeared in a tangle of brush to wave back. Of course, they have hidden people watching, she thought. They need to know what's going on out here. I wonder how many watchers they have. There were no workers on the bridge when they arrived. It looked as abandoned as it always had. The brambles, the ridge of dead leaves, it was all put back the way it had been. While they took off their soft boots, Susan studied the brushy edge of the woods. It took an effort to detect the camouflaged furniture van beneath the camo netting and branches. The sun setting behind them cast long shadows of the three as they walked over the bridge's broken pavement. Susan noticed that someone had strewn fresh dead leaves on the bridge and added tufts of dead grass in cracks where there had been none when she crossed earlier. I suppose they can't let the bridge look like they're working on it, she thought. It felt good to get out of the cold wind. After temperatures in the low twenties and a breeze, the low fifties of the lodge felt tropical. Susan, Hal, and Charon sat at the central picnic table, taking off their gear. Emily took a break from cranking the manual grain grinder bolted to the kitchen workbench along the wall. She handed each of them a freshly baked flatbread disc. A pitcher of water and plastic cups sat at the center of the table. Emily brushed stray hair out of her eyes as she returned to grinding grain. The mill's zhum, zhum, zhum whine became a backdrop to all conversations. Ah, from the looks on your faces, I gather you didn't find the trail, Byron asked. Nope, said Hal, before sipping his water. Just like I told you, the road only leads to a swamp or back around. Susan felt her face get hot again. She stared at the table, chewing her flatbread, glad for the dim light to conceal her blush of embarrassment. Well, I guess there's always tomorrow, said Byron. That's about all we've got, too, said Churn. The trucks are due to start arriving at the staging area in two days. We'll find it tomorrow, Susan said, without looking up. She hoped to sound coolly confident. Her tone didn't match her hopes. Oh, that would be good, said Byron. A whole lot of folks are really counting on this longbow thing working. Putting in a lot of hours and hard work to fix up that old bridge, thinking they'll get some food out of the deal. Oh, great, Susan thought. No pressure or anything. She didn't need anyone else applying pressure. She was doing enough of that herself. Her eyes had adjusted to the dim lighting. She glanced up, expecting to see all eyes glaring down at her. Instead, she noticed that the room was virtually empty. Emily stood with her back to them, cranking the grinder. Byron stood nearby, sharpening a knife. Other than the three of them at the table, there was no one else around. Where is everybody? Susan asked, hoping to change the topic. They're all out doing their chores, Byron said, without looking up from his whetstone. Everybody's got several jobs to do at the camp. No lounging around or getting bored. Nobody simply lives here. Justine and Owen are working on the generator and motor. Need more power to drive some cutters and that welder tomorrow. Kayla's treating some kids with fevers. Isaac is out meeting his group, due back by supper. Got a team shoring up that weak section of tunnel. 
and another team out salvaging some parts Justine requested. Hal looked at his watch. And I'm about due to go relieve the watch up in the steeple so he can haul in some firewood. Charon, you're on deck for the inner loop patrol in a few minutes. Charon nodded and tossed the last of his flatbread into his mouth. Byron turned from his whetstone, sliding the short curved blade back and forth over a steel. So I guess that just leaves you, Miss Price. Leaves me for what? To help me dress out that coon. What? Uh, but I don't... I, I've never... Doesn't matter, said Byron. He wiped his blade across his sleeve and squinted at the fine edge. Everyone else has chores they're doing. Dressing that coon can't take me all evening. I've got chores, too. Gotta get that guy in the pot and get on to other tasks. Coons can be so dang greasy. I need someone to help me with skinning and stuff. Don't have time to waste doing it solo. Charon snorted into his cup. The princess gotten a coon? <laughs> Never gonna happen. Susan's eyes narrowed. Her jaw muscles tightened. She could prove him wrong right then and there. I'd be happy to help you with that, Mr. Davis, she said with a nod. Good deal. Let's get started, said Byron. Follow me. He picked up a bucket of rags and some other gear and headed for the pump house tunnel. Susan followed, looking over her shoulder as they walked toward the tunnel. She wanted to catch Charon's eye so she could glare at him in victory. She proved him wrong, but he never looked up. As she followed Byron down the tunnel, the reality of what she had just volunteered for replaced her sense of victory. In a moment of panic, she pictured blood spattering all over like it did the hapless bystanders in horror movies. She squinted and writhed at the thought. Her breathing began to speed up. Um, Mr. Davis, uh, what exactly would I be doing to help? She hoped he would say something like guarding the door. Byron climbed the ladder to the pump house above. Uh, depends. If he's cooperative, might just be you handing me cleaned off knives and a towel now and then for my oily hands. She followed him up the ladder. Handing him towels didn't sound so bad. But if he's a naughty greaseball, continued Byron, it'll be more like piano for four hands, and we'll both be in up to our elbows. He chuckled as he closed the trapdoor behind them. Susan swallowed hard and tried not to picture her arms inside of a dead animal. What did animal guts even look like? Her high school had been too enlightened to subject students to the upsetting grossness of dissections in biology class. Byron was careful to walk only on the short dead grass or leaf litter, avoiding the patches of snow. Around the northern side of the lodge building, the snow lay in a drift. Two dark paws stuck out of an area of churned-up snow. Byron pulled out the dead raccoon by its back feet and shook off the loose snow. Oh, good. Hal drained him already. Ah, oh, that'll help. The fur around the raccoon's neck was stained a dark brownish-red. Smooth that snow down, please, so it doesn't look all churned up, and cover any bloody snow. I'm going to go hang this guy up. Smoothing snow wasn't so onerous. She was more than happy to cover up the blood. Out of sight, out of mind. Ah, oh, that's good, called Byron from the nearby cabin porch. Time to get started. Come on. He had the raccoon hung up by the back legs from a porch rafter. 
Various knives were lined up on the porch railing. From what Sharon told me, your background was banking, right? More of a city girl than a country girl? Susan nodded slowly. She was embarrassed by her urbane lack of country skills. While she had learned a lot at the Simmons house in just a few months, she didn't want to oversell her country experience. Byron might task her with skinning and gutting the coon all by herself. Um, yeah, I uh, had kind of a sheltered life in the city. I was learning more about you know, what needs to be done, uh, but Martin always prepared the animals they hunted. Ah, well, this'll be a good tutorial for you. Gotta know how to dress a kill. Before we begin, there's some mental prep to make. A lot of my campers came from the city, so I tell them that they have to not think of the animal as if it were alive and fuzzy and warm and cute. With some critters, like possums, it's easier to get over the cute part. Eh, they just ain't cute. Anyhow, like I said, you gotta just accept that it's already dead. You're not hurting it. It's not an animal anymore. It's a bag of resources. The detachment thing, Susan muttered to herself. Detachment, yeah, exactly. The goal is to recover the resources with detachment. So, the animal didn't die in vain. It's got a pelt, it's got meat, it's got some other valuable stuff. The respectful thing to do is to recover those resources. Native Americans thought that way. Settlers thought that way. It's only been modern industrialized man that lost sight of the reality of life, death, and resources. Waste is a modern invention. <laughs> Don't get me preaching on industrialized man, eh? Byron chuckled. We'll be here all day. Okay, first up, I've got to peel the skin off to get at the meat inside. Kind of like peeling an orange. You make a little slit here from the middle of his lower belly up to his ankle and up the other side, too. Byron slid the sharp knife between the skin and the muscle with a deft hand. He made it look easy. Once around both ankles, then back down between his tail and his pooper until you got him all unzipped. Susan felt a tingling sensation creep across her shoulders. Animal rectums were not something that came up much in city life. Well, ever, actually. On the brighter side, she was pleasantly surprised at the lack of blood from all the cuts Byron made. She was certain she wouldn't be able to handle the sight of gushing buckets of blood like there were in the movies. Then, when we've got the pelt free all the way around, we pull down. Byron tugged on the edges of the pelt with both hands. The skin came off the legs fairly easily. The belly and the back, however, were not so cooperative. His hand slipped free several times. Ah, this one's going to be a stubborn little greaseball. Good news is he's got a lot of nice fat on him. Get some good oil out of all of that. Bad news is it's going to make him tougher to skin. Looks like it's going to be piano for four hands. What? Susan hoped she had heard him wrong. Thanks for listening. And, speaking of thanks... I hope all you listeners in the States had a good Thanksgiving yesterday. For the many listeners in Australia, the UK, and Germany, I realize it wasn't an official holiday for you, but I'm sure you've got a list of things for which you're thankful. I know I'm thankful for all of you. <laughs>